0: What happens when we equate godliness with goodness? What do we teach our children when we emphasize that being good makes them a good person? How does it affect self-esteem if we stray away from the expected norm for Christian behavior? Today, I'm rethinking the terms good and godly in favor of an inclusive, grace-centered gospel. On Life Repurposed, you'll find a blend of practical wisdom and biblical inspiration that's designed to help you navigate everyday life with faith, purpose, and hope. We focus on personal and spiritual growth with a range of topics from improving your relationships and discovering your purpose to setting and achieving goals, plus tools and resources to help you live your repurposed life. I'm your host, Michelle Rayburn, the author of books and Bible studies about finding hope in the trashy stuff of life. This episode has been brought to you by my Patreon supporters, my family budget, and the products that I create. So before we get rolling, here's a quick word for you. Have you ever faced life's curveballs and felt as if you were in pieces? There's no need to be a Bible expert, this book meets you right where you are. So what's inside? Over six weeks you'll dig into the Apostle Paul's story and his timeless letters, no fancy degree required, you'll explore thought-provoking questions and reflections, and go a little further with micro-studies throughout the week. Renewed is like a roadmap to rediscovery, renewal, and the kind of joy that sneaks up on you in the midst of life's messiness. It's like catching up with a friend who's been through it and wants to share their hard-earned wisdom. Themes such as redeemed, restart, repurpose, revive, rejoice, and repeat light the way, showing you how to find beauty in the cracks and grace in the chaos. It's sprinkled with humor, relatable examples, and a healthy dose of soul searching. And this book is your partner in spiritual growth. Whether you're flying solo or diving in with a group, Renewed has you covered. And don't worry, I left plenty of space for your notes, scribbles, and doodles. Ready to take a journey toward renewal, hope, and some serious soul soothing? Grab your copy of Renewed, then get comfy, and let's dig in. All right, let's get started. The idea of equating godliness with goodness is something many of us have encountered in our Christian journey. It's a concept deeply ingrained in the Christian culture. But what happens when we make this connection? You know, when we equate godliness with goodness, we can unintentionally create a spiritual hierarchy We may start to believe that those who seem, quote, good are holier or closer to God than others, and this can lead to a sense of judgment and self-righteousness. It's crucial to understand that being good doesn't necessarily mean someone is more godly, and being godly doesn't make someone better than someone else. I'm going to start off here with an example from parenting, but then I'll move into a much broader application of this concept of rethinking the labels of good and godly. Perhaps you've met up with someone you haven't seen in a while. And if you have children, the conversation naturally goes towards talking about your children. So you ask how their children are doing, or they ask you. It might go something like this. Here are three responses. Great, I have such good kids. My girls are all married to godly men. We're blessed. Oh, my sons are pastors, godly husbands. I'm so proud of them. I'm guilty of saying things similar to this. We want to be proud of our kids, and it warms my heart to see my boys make choices that honor God. However, what might there be between the lines and statements like that? We need to look at that. What we don't say says almost as much as what we do say. And it also might be a way of trying to pat ourselves on the back a little, like, look at me, look how my children turned out and didn't dishonor my name. Let's break these three down before we move away from talking about kids to our self-talk and look at what might be said between the lines, whether we intend it or not. Oftentimes, what we don't say comes out directly to the listener And they probably are grasping the meaning of what we meant to say, if you understand what I'm saying there between the lines. Okay, let's look at the first one. Great! I have such good kids. Does this mean there are bad kids? This statement smacks of star athlete, honor roll students, and model citizens. Is that what we mean? If someone else's child doesn't fit these descriptions, are they still good? So what's going on in the conversation when we say, I have such good kids? How about the next one? My girls are all married to godly men. We're so blessed. If someone has three daughters and one of them marries a man who doesn't fit that description, what does that mean? Do two of the sisters get the blessing of mom and dad and the other one doesn't? what about when friends are part of this conversation? If their daughters choose to live with a boyfriend or marry someone outside of the church, do those friends just go silent during the conversation? And let me tell you, if someone does go silent in the conversation, perk up a little bit because I'm one who often goes silent when I don't know what else to say. So if you have a friend who goes silent just pause a moment and think of what might have happened in the conversation to make that person be silent. Anyway, here, the unspoken message could be, my children make better choices than yours. If we aren't careful about that context, that's the statement we might be making. Here's the third one. Oh, my sons are pastors, godly husbands. We're so proud of them. Does this mean the role of pastor is the be-all, end-all career that our sons should strive for? Can others measure up? What does godly even mean? And I want to say that sometimes godly can really be defined by the culture we grew up in. So we're going to be talking about that in a little bit. So we'll come back to that. With each of these, context is a big factor. There's nothing wrong with a mom and dad feeling their hearts swell when their children take steps of faith and follow God. There's a big difference in celebrating that blessing between the two of you and in how you talk about it among friends. Some discernment is in order, some checking of our motives and thoughts. Now, this doesn't mean we have to filter everything we say and be worried about who it's going to offend, but In some ways, that is a little bit about what we have to do, because in some circles and in some contexts, what we say can be full of hidden meaning. And so we have to be careful in knowing, like, this is a conversation I have with my best friend who knows my heart, and this is a conversation I have with somebody I haven't seen in a very long time. So if you understand what I'm saying there, I think that helps. I also want to be really honest with you here and tell you where I'm coming from, my parenting journey a little bit, because I think it helps. That transparency gives you some context behind what I'm talking about today. I raised two sons. Neither one went through any strong phase of rebelling. My parenting journey was relatively easy didn't come with a lot of drama. Now, I want you to know I don't take credit for the current life choices of my children. They are adults. They have free will. From the time they left our home, they were doing their own. In fact, actually, before they left our home, they we fostered independence. They were making choices based on their own relationship with God and based on their own future, and so it didn't have something to do with me as much as with them. I'm happy that they have chosen paths that have led them towards strong marriages, a relationship with God, active participation in a community of Christians, and faith. I know people who raise children in a similar way to how we raised ours, and they make different life choices from my boys. And I give that as a disclaimer today to say that we can do what we believe is, quote, air quotes here, right for our children and still have them take their own path. I have empathy for parents who experience different results because some of that comes with a lot of pain. And so I want you to know this because I don't take credit for how my children, quote, turned out. I'm using a ton of air quotes today. I feel like I just have to, but I don't take credit for how they turned out. I'm an adult. My children are adults. We all have our unique journeys, struggles, and growth areas. So, what do we teach our kids when we emphasize that being good makes them a good person? Well, when we emphasize being good as the primary measure of a good person, we may unintentionally promote a performance-driven faith. Children might grow up thinking that their worthiness in God's eyes depends on their behavior. This can actually lead to anxiety, self-doubt, and a fear of making mistakes. I can testify to this because... I had some of that really, like, when I look back, I really had that fear of making a mistake. And I call myself a perfectionist, but I think it was really more tied to this idea of goodness and really wanting to be godly because in ultimately... I had this core feeling that it made me better in God's eyes. It's essential to remind our children and ourselves that God's love for us is not based on our performance. It's unconditional. Our worthiness comes from being created in His image and not from how well we adhere to a set of rules. When we start equating godliness with goodness, we often unintentionally set up a dichotomy. Those who are perceived as, quote, godly or good are often held up as examples to follow, while those who don't conform to these expectations might feel they fall short or they're considered bad in comparison. When we talk about someone's kids as good, like, you should hang out with the good kids or, wow, that's such a good bunch of kids. I do this. I say this. Here's what it implies. It means there's a bunch of bad kids. There are not bad people. There are people who make bad choices who have all sorts of reasons for why they make bad choices for things that have happened in their life that I know nothing about. They are individuals making those decisions, but they are not bad people. So let's look at how this godliness and goodness dichotomy affects us as individuals and not just as parents. Let's go beyond the parenting thing. This dynamic can have profound consequences within our Christian communities. It can foster an environment where some individuals, consciously or unconsciously, adopt an air of self righteousness, believing themselves to be superior in their faith or their moral character. And in doing so, they may unknowingly push others away, making them feel like outsiders, inadequate, or even unworthy of God's love. The danger in this lies not only in the judgment and division it creates, but also in the distortion of the core message of Christianity, Jesus' teachings emphasized love, grace, and forgiveness for all, not just for those who fit a particular mold of godliness or goodness. By emphasizing these labels too strongly, we risk overshadowing the central message of unconditional love and grace for everyone regardless of their perceived goodness it's so important to remember that none of us is without flaws or mistakes. We all have areas in our lives where we fall short, and it's in acknowledging our imperfections that we can truly grasp the depth of God's grace and mercy. Rather than labeling ourselves or others as good or bad, we should focus on nurturing an environment of humility, empathy, and understanding within our Christian communities. In doing so, we can create a space where people feel safe to share their struggles and vulnerabilities, knowing that they will be met with compassion and support rather than judgment. This, in turn, can lead to more authentic spiritual growth and a deeper connection with God, all free from the burden of self-righteousness and exclusion. By recognizing the potential harm of equating godliness and goodness and actively working to dismantle these labels, we can cultivate a more inclusive, loving, and Christ-centered community that truly reflects the essence of our faith. Now, I just want to be clear here. This is the Life Repurpose podcast. We're talking about repurposing something, and I know that The Bible tells us that we should strive for godliness. I'm not denying that. So, you know, if you want to write to me because you found that Bible verse, there's a lot of them actually, uh, that's not what this is about, okay? So this is, I can strive for godliness in my personal relationship with God. This is about labeling other people and using godliness as a badge to proclaim self-righteousness, if that makes sense. This is not a, a label I need to put on myself. Or, you know, for me, it would be like, If I'm putting that on myself, I'd be saying, look at me, look how godly I am. Or if I'm putting it on my kids, it's look at them, look how godly they are. Okay, so that's what this is about. It's about repurposing in such a way that we're not so focused on that goodness gospel as one author called it. So um, I know that term's been out there, but there was a book I read in 2015. I think it was um, Christine Hoover who wrote that book. And it just reminds us that the gospel is not about goodness. Okay, so before we go further, I want to take a little side trip here. For anyone who is raised in a very conservative, rule-following faith background, think a sort of like fundamentalism. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit what that is in a second. I said it would be a side trip, so buckle up. We're going to swerve a bit, and we're going to define this well, and here's why. I believe we can't get to the root of what I've heard called that goodness gospel until we uproot the core problem. So when we get to that, we can we can get rid of that root and then pull that out and then we can make change. That's how life repurposed happens. And I want to go down this road because we're veering toward the direction where I grew up. Now, I didn't grow up in a church that wouldn't necessarily be labeled as fundamentalist at that time but looking back there were some flavors of it if that makes sense if you have watched um some of the documentaries that are now out there especially um the one about the Duggars uh shiny happy people I think is what that one is um some of that really features the the ultra fundamentalist perspective but I had a lot of flavors of that in my growing up So here are some traits of fundamentalism, and it also explains how it's tied to the goodness gospel. And so I want to go over some of these terms because I think it helps us to understand it. I don't like to just throw around terms. I don't just want to say that sounds fundamentalist and then not really define that. I also have a master's in ministry leadership, and so I really love digging into terminology. So if this is a little too geeky for you, I really, I apologize. Thank you for indulging me for a few minutes in this as we go over just nine terms that are kind of tied into this, and then I'll come back and explain to you why this is so tied to the goodness gospel. The first one that sort of defines fundamentalism is doctrinal rigidity fundamentalism focuses on a strict and unwavering adherence to specific religious doctrines or beliefs. It's very well defined, and you stay in that box. The other one is dogmatism. This can be characterized by an uncompromising and authoritarian stance on religious or ideological matters. So we look at that doctrinal rigidity and we say, we don't compromise. Here is the ultimate authority. I'm even taking an authoritarian tone when I'm saying that. I'm sorry about that, but I can't help myself. Okay, the third one is conservatism. Now, you might think of conservatism in a political way, but fundamentalist movements are typically resistant to change and often seek to preserve traditional religious or cultural values. Now, yes, that could be tied to political ideology, but we're thinking of it really in the traditional religious, um, and and it ties to the next term, number four, which is orthodoxy. And fundamentalists frequently uphold a particular form of religious orthodoxy, asserting that their interpretation of faith is the only correct one. Now, we're not talking about like orthodox as in Greek orthodox. We're talking about orthodoxy in I'm following the confines and constructs of my religion, and I believe that this particular one is the only correct one. Okay, number five is exclusivity. Fundamentalist groups may view their interpretation of faith as the only valid one, which not only excludes but condemns those who hold different beliefs. The sixth one is cultural resistance. Fundamentalist movements often resist secular influences and modern cultural shifts, aiming to maintain a distinct cultural identity. Number seven, authoritarianism fundamentalist leaders or structures often wield significant authority and control over their followers and dictate how they should live and believe. Number eight, isolationism fundamentalist communities may isolate themselves from broader society to maintain their distinct beliefs and practices. In, in, for me in my childhood, that was sort of like we don't associate so much with people from outside of our distinct beliefs and practices. We don't marry outside of those beliefs. We don't have events together, youth groups together, those kinds of things to help you um, kind of put that into perspective. The last one, number nine, is moralism. Fundamentalism often places a strong emphasis on moral behavior and may lead to a judgmental attitude toward those who do not adhere to their moral code. That one is very much a part of my upbringing. Um, Just the idea of when I went off to college, I had such a judgmental attitude toward those who were not following the the same moral choices that I made. And I still struggle with a lot of these things, just trying to uproot these from my thinking. So if I were to look at these nine, doctrinal rigidity, dogmatism, conservatism, orthodoxy, exclusivity, cultural resistance, authoritarianism, isolationism, and moralism, I would say that in some way, all of those had something to do with my faith upbringing and um, in a pretty big way on a lot of them, even though we didn't wear prairie dresses (laughs) and we didn't didn't court (laughs) our future spouses, all of that kind of stuff. If you've watched Shiny Happy People, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, as we look at that now, in light of that information, let's summarize. In these Christian communities, There's often a strong emphasis on strict adherence to a set of beliefs, values, and behavioral norms. And while it's essential to have a clear moral framework, I'm not denying that, the danger comes up when this framework becomes rigid and unforgiving and leads to a judgmental atmosphere. And then it becomes very tied to being good and godly. In some Christian circles, a godly wife is defined by a woman who stays home. She homeschools the children. She grows a garden. She manages a homestead with chickens and goats. <laughs> Seriously, all of it. I'm, I'm really stereotyping there. I, I apologize for that. It can mean she leads a study on being the perfect Proverbs 31 wife and that she has no aspirations of using leadership gifts in a broader sense in the church. She stays in her lane. So, in some circles, a godly wife is the one who says yes, dear, to her husband, and she definitely does not speak up. Again, it is a stereotype, but maybe you're a listener who says, oh, I know that stereotype very well. There can be a tendency in some conservative circles, then, to view those who don't conform to the established norms as outsiders or even threats to the faith. And you have maybe seen this in practice, where somebody who's outside of our mindset is perceived as a threat. This can foster an environment where those who are perceived as less godly or labeled as less good are marginalized, shamed, or excluded. And I didn't know how to put this into words before. I've had people ask me before, why did you leave a certain church? Why did you go somewhere else? This was the mindset that was I was wrestling with so much inside. And I was in an environment that fostered this idea of marginalizing, shaming, or excluding. And I just wanted to break out of it. I, I've, I know some wonderful people who love Jesus, who are so caught in that. And God opened my eyes to seeing that, and I just had to get out of there. And that's hard sometimes because, you know, we have friends and everything. So anyway, that was a big aside, okay? Okay. There's a pressure to maintain an image of godliness and goodness that can become overwhelming in this environment. Individuals feel compelled to hide their struggles, hide their doubts, hide their personal challenges, and they fear that admitting to imperfection will result in ostracizing and condemning from the people they love. And then ultimately, it leads to a lack of authenticity and vulnerability within the community. Now I'm going to go a little deep here and make a hypothesis. Our choice of terminology makes a statement because our faith and our political and social ideologies all tie together more than we think. Try to untangle your political and social ideology from your faith, can you? It's really hard. When certain political or cultural positions are equated with godliness, it creates a climate where anyone who holds different views is automatically labeled as less godly and less good. This can result in a divisive and hostile environment that goes against the Christian principles of love, grace, and reconciliation. Whether we want it or not, whether we intend to or not, I believe that our expressions about goodness and godliness can tell people between the lines that God loves us more when we follow the, quote, right rules. How do I know? Because I lived it. I grew up hearing about God's grace, but believing I had to be good. Without anyone intending to, they taught me that God would love me more if I was good. All right, so you probably have some questions. How do we fix it? What do we do? Give us some solutions, Michelle! It's crucial to encourage open dialogue and a willingness to question and explore one's faith. Emphasizing the core message of Christianity, which is love, grace, and redemption for all, is so essential. Leaders, parents, and friends can play a pivotal role in modeling humility and vulnerability, showing that it's okay to admit imperfection. Ultimately, a shift in perspective from judging to understanding, from exclusion to inclusion, can help our communities become more aligned with the teachings of Christ. It's a process that requires patience, empathy, and a commitment to fostering a culture where individuals feel safe to be their authentic selves while pursuing a genuine relationship with God free from the constraints of of rigid labels. When we don't meet the standards of goodness, when we don't measure up to the standards others have set, it can lead to feelings of shame and inadequacy. And people start to question their worthiness and even distance themselves from God in the church. And if people are moving away from the church, it's important for us to look back at ourselves, not to look at them and label them as people who are deconstructing. Because for me, I've gone through multiple periods of deconstructing my faith and then reconstructing, and this is a big part of it. And so when people have moved away from the church, when they have said, I don't want to be part of that community— then we need to ask, what's happening here? It's heartbreaking to me to think that, that people can push away from God when they need His love and grace the most, and we might have something to do with that. So what can we do to combat this misconception? And what can we do to foster healthier understanding of godliness and goodness within ourselves or our communities? Well, we're going to talk about that in a couple of steps here, but the solution ultimately is grace, the transformative power of God's love and grace. When we get vulnerable and when we emphasize God's unconditional love, we can help break down the harmful equation of godliness and goodliness, goodliness godliness and goodness. It could be goodliness, right? We create a more inclusive and compassionate Christian community. Helping people embrace grace over goodness can lead to a more compassionate and inclusive understanding of faith as well. So here are some solutions that we can do, practical things we can do to encourage this shift. I'm going to give you eight practical things. Maybe you can pick one of them to work on. Maybe you'll find multiples. The first one is embrace unconditional love. Emphasize that God's love is not contingent upon performance or goodness. Teach that God's love is limitless regardless of our actions. Promote self-reflection and introspection to examine our motives and attitudes toward others and ask if it's motivated in love. Number two, share personal stories. Encourage people to share their own stories of struggle, of growth, and redemption. Personal stories of experiencing God's grace can be powerful in helping others see that they're not alone in their imperfections. We need to share our stories of redemption and growth and highlight that it's okay to make mistakes because God's love remains constant. Number three, biblical exploration. Examine and discuss biblical passages that highlight God's grace and forgiveness. Studying stories like the prodigal son, which is familiar to a lot of people in Luke 15, can illustrate how God's grace welcomes us back even when we've strayed. A little aside there, the word prodigal means extravagant, and we often think of the prodigal son as wasteful and we think about what he did, but it's really about God being the prodigal one. Prodigal doesn't mean straying away, in case you're thinking about that. Prodigal means extravagant. And it can illustrate there how God's grace is prodigal. It is extravagant. He lavishes it on us even when we stray. So, biblical exploration is important. Number four, challenge legalism. Address legalistic interpretations of faith by promoting a more holistic understanding of Christianity. Challenge it when you see it happening. Encourage a balance between adhering to moral principles and recognizing the importance of grace. One of the biggest growth factors in my life has been challenging legalism, asking questions and saying, is this really what Jesus would do? Number five, foster a culture of vulnerability. I've mentioned that a little bit in sharing personal stories, but create an environment where individuals feel safe to share their doubts, their struggles, their questions without fear of judgment. Vulnerability can lead to deeper connections and spiritual growth for both the person asking the questions and the one listening and answering those questions. We grow from one another when we're vulnerable. Emphasize that repentance or turning back to God is more important than striving for perfection and teach that it's okay to acknowledge mistakes and seek forgiveness. Number six, lead by example. Church leaders should model humility, authenticity, and a reliance on God's grace in their own lives. Leaders who admit their own imperfections can set an important example. And this is where um, things like When Narcissism Comes to Church by Chuck DeGroat are such important messages because leaders should not be narcissistic. They should model humility and authenticity. And that includes us when we're leading in any way. I've had times where it's really hard for me to admit I made a mistake. As a leader, we need to do that too. Number seven, emphasize forgiveness. Teach the importance of forgiveness not only from God, but also among one another. Encourage a forgiving attitude toward others, recognizing that we all make mistakes. And lastly, number eight, promote acts of kindness and compassion. This is not just a feel-good, friendly thing that we do at work and have random acts of kindness day or at school. This is a daily way of living. We can encourage ourselves and others to act and engage with acts of kindness and compassion toward others. These actions can help people experience and understand the grace of God in a tangible way. So it's why they're so important. Now, as we do these things, Remember that embracing grace over goodness is a journey that may take time. Patience, empathy, and a commitment to fostering love and a grace-centered community are the key to helping individuals shift their perspective toward a more inclusive and compassionate faith. It's time to land this plane. I could keep going, but we're running out of time, and I want to share with you what I've been reading, so I'm going to give you one book in a second. But in this episode titled Rethinking Good and Godly, For an inclusive, grace-centered gospel, we've explored the powerful idea that grace transcends the labels of goodness and godliness. And as we conclude, I'd like to leave you with a few takeaways. First, let's remember that Christianity at its core is about love, grace, and redemption. It's not about judgment or striving to be good in the eyes of others. God's love is unconditional and His grace is available to all, regardless of where we stand on our journey of faith. Secondly, Let's challenge ourselves to let go of self-righteousness and the need to label ourselves or others as good or bad. Let's embrace humility, vulnerability, and a willingness to acknowledge our imperfections. It's through these moments of vulnerability that we can truly experience the depth of God's grace. And lastly, I encourage you to share this message of grace with others. As we rethink the way we approach our faith, we have the opportunity to create more inclusive, compassionate, and loving Christian communities. By doing so, we reflect the essence of the gospel and the transformative power of God's grace, and that's a life repurposed. Before we go, I want to tell you about two books that I think are good resources. One fits really well with the topic that I've just been talking about, and I have just finished listening to the audiobook, and that one is A Church Called Tove, T O V. Forming a Goodness Culture that Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing. This is a book by Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger, a father-daughter team. And I'll give you a little bit from the back cover copy in a second, but I just want to mention that tov is a Hebrew word for goodness. And so this is a term that comes up a lot throughout the book, talking about what true goodness is in a goodness culture that is um based on what God defines as good from the Old Testament. And so here's a little bit from the back cover of the book and the book description. It says tragically, in recent years, Christians have gotten used to revelations of abuses of many kinds in our most respected churches, from Willow Creek to Harvest, from Southern Baptist pastors to Sovereign Grace churches. Respected author and theologian Scott McKnight and former Willow Creek member Laura Beringer wrote this book to paint a pathway forward for the church. We need a better way. The sad truth is that churches of all shapes and sizes are susceptible to abuses of power, sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse. Abuses occur most frequently when Christians neglect to create a culture that resists abuse and promotes healing, safety, and spiritual growth. This book is a map. To get us from where we are today to where we ought to be in the body of Christ, and so it looks like I said at that Hebrew word that we translate good from the word Tove. So I encourage you to look up a church called Tove, either the audiobook or if you like to just read books, whatever you do for consuming books, this is a really good look if you have been wounded in the church and you would like some encouragement, or maybe you're in a church culture that needs to be turned around and revamped a little bit. Uh, this is a Really good resource for that, and then I also want to read, or I also want to tell you about uh, the other book that I just finished reading. And again, I did this on audiobook, but then ended up purchasing the print book because there are some things I want to go back over. I do that sometimes. This one is by Beth Allison Barr. I mentioned that I was about to read it recently. It is called "The Making of Biblical Womanhood: How Subjugation of the of Women Became Gospel Truth." And I'll read you a little bit from the back cover of this one as well. "'Biblical womanhood, the belief that God designed women to be submissive wives, virtuous mothers, and joyful homemakers, pervades North American Christianity. From choices about careers to roles in local churches to relationship dynamics, this belief shapes the everyday lives of evangelical women. Yet biblical womanhood isn't biblical,' says Baylor University historian Beth Allison Barr. "'It arose from a series of clearly definable historical moments.'" This book moves the conversation about biblical womanhood beyond Greek grammar and into the realm of church history, ancient, medieval, and modern, to show that this belief is not divinely ordained, but a product of human civilization that continues to creep into the church. Now, this book is about... Beth's experience, along with a ton of historical research, she's really knowledgeable, and so I really loved um, how she brought history into it. It gets a little deep <laughs> in places, but I like that, and she. Um, it tells her story as a Baptist pastor's wife, talks about how her husband got fired when they started to just ask some questions. And so this, is, this ties into what I've talked about in this episode of we need to have a space where we can ask questions. And I encourage you to read books like this, even if you think, oh my goodness, Michelle, what are you talking about? I have no desire to read something about that. I'm good with where I'm at with my perspective. That's okay. I respect you for that. But I would encourage you to read a book like The Making of Biblical Woman, just out of curiosity, just so that you can have conversations with other people and understand where they're coming from. And you might find that in reading something like that, your viewpoints are challenged and changed a bit. Mine have been. And I encourage you to be open to that, even if you're not right now, be open to that just in curiosity and know that you can weigh it out and see what you think about it when you finish reading something like that. So those are two resources I'm going to link in the show notes. That will be at michellerayburn.com slash 167. I'd love to have you get those resources. If you get them through the link in the show notes, it helps me because I get a tiny little commission that costs you nothing extra. So I always appreciate it when you go through the links that I share. As we wrap up, I want to thank you for being part of this important conversation. Remember that your life has incredible value no matter where you are on your journey of faith. God loves you just as you are, and he's with you every step of the way. Until next time, keep rethinking, keep growing, and keep embracing the beautiful, grace-centered gospel that brings us all together. You've been listening to Life Repurposed. If you'd like bonus resources sent to your inbox each week, Be sure to sign up at michellerayburn.com.